You're listening to Center Circle. Welcome to this edition of Center Circle. We've got a full show today, so let's get right to it. First off, we're going to discuss getting the ratio of games to training sessions right. Next, we'll explore problem solving versus decision making. We'll then move on to answers to questions parents often ask, followed by You Make the Call, where I ask Janelle and Dom to be referees and present them with game situations where they have to make the correct call. Finally, we'll end on the topic of joysticking in our offsides onsides feature. Dom, why don't you get us started with getting the ratio of games to training sessions right? Thanks for the introduction, Dan. This is a question that's been rambling around in my mind, I guess, for a while. Um, And what really triggered it off, I was back in England a few weeks ago. I went on a visit to Everton's Academy. Um, Everton's Academy is one of the the best in the country. It's produced a lot of players that have gone on to play in the EPL. The most notable being Wayne Rooney, of course, of Manchester United in England. I watched their under-9 team train and got chatting to one of the coaches afterwards and asked him how often they train, what sort of stuff they usually do. And I was quite surprised that they they trained five days a week and played on a Saturday, you know, which is more than professionals train. Now, where's the balance? Where Where is the social aspect? Where is the line where you say, okay, too much or, or not enough? Where, where does that come in? And how do we get the amount of training sessions relative to games correct. Dom, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things that I spoke to somebody at Blackburn who was part of their academy, and they said to me that the big difference in development between the U.S. and Europe is that from, you know, if you took our best players at the U10 level against Europe's best players, you'd see that they're pretty even. However, when they get older, that's when they start training five days a week. This guy said it was anywhere between 12 and 17 hours per week. And not only were they playing a game on Saturday, but they started playing games on Sundays as well, which is kind of different from their past history, which was less emphasis on the games and more emphasis on the training. So it's interesting to hear you saying that this is now starting earlier and trending earlier. Did they give you any kind of you know, schedule as how many hours per day they were training and how did they break that down into what was actually happening during the training sessions? I didn't get exact numbers, but each training session was around an hour and a half in length. So, you know, you're looking at a considerable amount of time there. What I did find interesting, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, is at the training ground, Everton actually had some, some street soccer cages set up. So some training sessions they'll just let the kids go out there and play um, which I think is is crucial how many times they're allowed to do that I don't know but they're they're certainly that's part of their curriculum and and they will do that from time to time but then it it comes down to the content of the training it doesn't matter if you train five days a week for 10 years if you're not doing the right stuff in training you're never going to improve you're never going to produce world-class players so it, it really comes down to the content of the training more than the frequency for me. Well, let's be honest, gentlemen. Um, what we're talking about here is, in essence, with the emergence of sports science and the amount of money in modern-day sports, I think everyone is trying to figure out the proper way to mass-produce the world-class athletes, if you may. And I don't know if we could clearly say there's one particular method that works best, but we do know that some people have a tendency to do it a certain way and have some success. The trend has, all, has always led us to try to follow the people that are producing the most quality with what they have. Hence, we, we always talk about the Brazilians in soccer, maybe the Russians or the Canadians in hockey and, and Soviet and the U.S. In, in Olympics and whatnot. So I believe here what we're looking at is what does science say is the right way to approach it? What is the trend of science in the modern day sports? Dom, you talked about street soccer cages. Can you elaborate on what exactly that looks like? Is it turf? Is it blacktop? Is it grass? The size of the yeah, field? Yeah, sure. So the, uh, you have basketball cages in the US, which you see in urban areas where people go and play basketball. It's effectively the same, same kind of size. 
but for soccer they'll have goals small goals built in and it'll probably be around 40 yards in length maybe 25 yards wide something like that um, and, it, and it was turf and I did actually see a, a team out there training but the coach pulled him in and was talking and giving instructions during the training so how much of that time is actually free play and it's interesting that Janil brings up the aspect of sports science we uh, the three of us the listeners don't know this but we we had been looking at an article um, by a guy called Paul Ford and some other sports scientists that looked at the development activities of elite soccer players under the age of 16 from all over the world from Brazil England France Ghana Mexico Portugal and Sweden and basically this looked at the activities that young players are doing and I guess he's trying to find a trend as to how these players reach the top and one thing that was very very interesting was a nation like Brazil their young players tend to start supervised training at a much later age they'll start it closer to eight whereas in somewhere like Sweden they're starting supervised training before they hit the age of six now if you look at the history of, of both countries it tells you that Brazil is the more successful soccer nation it's a it's a well-known fact that people always strive to hit 10,000 hours to achieve a world-class level of performance um, again looking at Sweden and Brazil Sweden by the time their kids hit the under 16 age group, they've hit over 5,000 hours. Whereas in Brazil, they're just over 4,000 hours. So it doesn't really add up. The science doesn't really add up there. Um, and another interesting part of what we're looking at is the start age in professional academies. Now in Brazil, the start age is over 13. And then you look at a country like Portugal, and the start age is, is just over 8 compared to, to England, where it's just over 10, and then France, Ghana, Mexico, Sweden, it's all around the age of 13. So what is the right answer? When do we push these kids to get involved in higher-level training? When do we say that a coach is necessary? Or, or do we just let the kids play and allow them to reach a certain level before we start stepping in? I know Janiel wants to jump in, but I have a quick question. The climate did they cite the climate as any kind of factor there? Because in Sweden, you clearly can't be playing year-round. And if you are, a lot of it's being played indoors, right. as opposed to Brazil, which you can play 365 days a year. It's different because in Sweden, they probably have much more organized fields and facilities as opposed to Brazil, which is a free-flowing soccer is being played everywhere, whether it's in the parks, whether it's in the streets, whether it's being played in their academy system. So did they talk about that at all? And is that a factor, you feel? It doesn't mention cultural differences at all. And cultural differences are a huge thing that I, I think are often neglected when people are doing these studies. You know, I'm English, so I'm going to talk about England for a second here. But people talk about England being being this great football, great soccer nation, if you look at the history of, of the English national team, they've only ever won the World Cup once. That was on home soil. And they cheated. We won't go into that then. <laughs> we haven't got enough time on the show to, uh, to resurface the Russian lines. I'm just kidding. Um, how many finals have they been to in European Championships or, or World Cups? No other ones. How many semifinals? Two, I believe. Euro 96, World Cup 90. Um, so are they really a great soccer nation the history to me suggests no but there is this you know great fallacy that that they are so what are the reasons behind it why don't England produce creative players for me it's a cultural thing in England if you're a little bit different if you're more creative in the way you think it's kind of frowned upon and there's always been this this physical element to the British game that's probably probably holding England back uh, and it's a cultural a, thing they're just a proper nation if you may you know do everything the right way hence, yeah hence lacking creativity i mean isn't that the yeah you know and, and and i'm jamaican which you know we're english if you may we're you know england is the motherland so i i, I understand exactly what dom is saying it, it's just everything has to be done the right way the fork has to go here your chest gotta be i mean you go on and on well in the game the game has to give you that that freedom to express yourself you know, the English culture is more standard. This is the way everyone does it. This is the way you should do it. And I think soccer nations that allow players to express themselves freely tend to have more success over time because that's what the game calls for, the modern game at least. 
Well, it's interesting that you say that about Jamaica because may you know Jamaica may have that England or that English foundation, but there's so much currency placed on individual flair and personality as far as the country goes. And you can see that sometimes on the soccer field, there's a lot of individual flair. Sometimes that's at the expense of team chemistry and playing as a unit. And I think sometimes that takes yeah, away. We've rebelled. <laughs> you know, we've gone from one extreme to the next, definitely. But um, there's some other factors that affect that. But but I mean, if, if we could kind of trend back into, you know, this whole process of what affects development of young players. I think in the U.S., which we're here, we're all involved in the game, we, we tend to hear the critique that the kids play too many games as, as a percentage of their soccer experience. And I'm of the belief that I, I think it's true when you compare it to what the other countries are doing, but I also believe we're unique. You know, Have we found what I call our way of doing it? And I'm not sure we have. So if and I know Dom has studied this a bit, but if we could kind of get down to what are the, the three major approaches or what they say and kind of maybe we could compare them to see what would work for us here in the States and, and can we do it the way the Brazilians do it and get the same success? Or can we do it the way they do it in another country and yield the same success? I'm not sure if we can. Yeah, well, one thing um, I think we have to be really careful of in, in the US is copying the English model. The difficulty in avoiding doing that is England and America have so many cultural uh, similarities. You know, the language is the same. A lot of the stuff is the same. It's kind of where the, the, the modern US came from is from England. So it's only natural that the US would want to use English academies and English. But also, you know, you have to realize is that Americans tend to defer to anybody with an English accent as much more knowledgeable about soccer due to our insecurity about the sport. So if, if a parent is listening to somebody with an English accent, they're going to say to themselves, well, that guy obviously knows more about soccer than anybody with an American accent. And sometimes that's at the detriment to the development of yeah, the it's players. Yeah, it's not true, Dan. It's definitely not true. And in the US now, we have to be very careful not to just follow the English way because... You know, they do have that English accent, like you were saying. You have to find what's best, what works, and trust that. Um, you can't just follow what England's doing because what England's doing is not working right now. And just because, you know, the EPL's on television over here every five minutes doesn't mean that there's a ton of English players and they're producing great players because if you look at the, the facts, they're not. And the US has to find find a system, an academy system, a, a development system that really does work and not just follow the English system because it's probably the most convenient to translate over here. Well, we also got to remember when we talk about the principles of the game, it was basically um, coined by an English fella. And it's what everyone in the game follows. In fact, in multiple sports, most team sports that are two-way sports, basketball and whatnot, they all follow similar principles. So I think that would stare most people to see England as the the original place where soccer was played and invented, if you may. And if you're going to follow any sport like basketball, everyone talks about the States. So the origin of it and, and where the principles took us, I think, is the foundation of every soccer country. But every country has kind of put their little spin on it. And I believe the evolution of the game is what has caused England, in my perception, in my view, to kind of take a backseat to those countries because the other countries that's evolved, they've added, they've twisted the principles. You know, you, you see the game now, the way the game is played, it's played right outside the 18-yard box of the opponent. You sit right in front of goal and you're not trying to score. You're just being patient. Who would ever do that in the 60s? It's against the principles of the game. As early as you could shoot, shoot the ball. So that again, we're, we're actually seeing the principles of the game being challenged. And they're not challenged in a real sense. They're just challenged in a sense of we're getting to the principles just a little bit slower. No, it's an interesting, interesting point. And then it brings us back, Janelle, to the original topic of how much training is too much? How many games are too much? And and this is something we can maybe look at by age group, Dan. What do you think? The thing that's interesting to me for you and what you described as far as, you know, the free play of the Brazilians and Janil was talking about, okay, our additional game in America. To me, I often find that the additional organized games in the U.S. are a substitute for 
normal free play in other countries. So we're getting in our extra game time in an organizational setting as opposed to the kids, the neighborhood kids just coming together and playing free form. Dan, you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, I often hear people that are from a third world nation or South America or other countries say, well, in the Americas, the kids don't touch the ball enough. Fact. Well, you know what? You don't let your kid out your house beyond one block in the Americas, so they can't touch the ball enough. You know, most of those countries, you let your kid go and you see them back in 10 hours and they've been <laughs> who knows where. But here's the problem. When they are playing those organizational games, they're not free to experiment, to explore, to make mistakes because you often have, and this will come up later in our joysticking topic, you'll have a dominant coach that's yelling at them what to do from the sidelines. They're not letting them play and have that wonderful exploration that they got when they're playing with their neighborhood friends where they could try out a fancy Maradona move or uh, something they saw Cristiano Ronaldo do. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I go deeper in that because I I do a lot of studies myself of the game. I I study the environment and and I believe our culture here is just a winning culture. Even when you're on the practice pitch, if a kid expresses himself... The parent, the kids, everyone says that kid is a ball hog. Why are you doing that? But if the kid scores 16 goals, he's not a ball hog anymore. He's a superstar. So I think culture plays an important part in in how we play. Because we like to say, for instance, you know, the game is a good tool to get the kids on the ball. I don't think the game is the problem. It's the approach to the game that's the problem. Because if the kids aren't going to touch the ball on their own, maybe the game is actually helping the America kids. You know, because it's another chance for them to get on the ball. But if the competition is going to be win at all costs, then that's where the damage comes in. You know, to your point, you know, our games, in essence, replace touching the ball that the South Americans or the Caribbean kids will do. You know, the the numbers say, as you heard, Dom, you know, early introduction to a sport. A kid would come home from school and he would do his homework. Sometimes he wouldn't and he'd get his ball. And guess what? He might even spend the first 45 hour, 45 to an hour of that time with his ball by himself, with his imagination, dribbling against the ghost defenders that is in his mind. And then his friends would come home from school and then he'll go play with two or three of his friends. And by another three hours from that, he'll go play a game. You know, in one day, a kid might put in three hours of soccer. In America, that's their entire week, if they're lucky. Dom, what were some of the other takeaways from uh, this report and some of your other observations? From the report, something uh, I took was obviously, like I said, about not putting them into organized environments. And going back to what Janil said earlier, the game's about chaos. The game's always changing. Very rarely do you have set situations that happen. It's not American football where plays are dictated before the game. Anything can happen, and it's always changing. The pitch is always changing. So should kids be put into these organized environments from a young age? I don't think so. And I think if they are with a coach from a young age, the coach has to facilitate that chaos. The coach has to allow for experimentation and allow for some expression because otherwise you can still produce good players, but you're not going to produce the Messi's or the Ronaldo's or or the creative players that that everyone loves to watch, that cost millions and millions of dollars. You're not going to produce those types of players unless they give them freedom to express themselves and, and kind of learn through the game but they have to be guided in the right way. And it's all about developing the right type of environment. Um, Another thing I took from from the visit to Everton, there was a kid playing for their under nines who was out of this world. And I haven't seen many under nine players, but he's he's got to be the best I've ever seen. So straight away I say to the coach, who is this kid? He's he's a player. So the coach says to me, yeah, he's, he's very good, very good, one of the best we've had at his age group. The next sentence that came out of his mouth really shocked me. He said to me, he'll never make it at Everton so I said well how can you say that at nine years of age and he said well he has a problem with his his running gait so he won't make it here he'll make it somewhere in the league maybe a championship club or a league one club but but he won't make it here and I'm thinking to myself you have this wonderful talent at nine years of age wonderful and straight away you're shooting him down and again we go back to a cultural aspect and it's very much the English culture, you know, they don't like to see people do well, it's, you have to fit in, you can't be different. And I'm thinking to myself, Everton are spending thousands of pounds paying a sports scientist to work with the academy. If the kid has something wrong with his running mechanics, 
at the age of nine, you've basically got 10 years to fix those running mechanics and make sure he gets into the first team. It's also interesting. I mean, the sports science from what you're saying sounds like it's coming in between the kid's development and his potential and kind of shooting him down in that way. I mean, if you look at some of these superstars, their running gait or their running mechanics, you know, whether it's Ronaldo's duck stance or you're looking at Messi, who's got more of a plotting type of gait, would these guys would have made it out of uh, Everton's academy? You have to wonder, like they're putting too much emphasis on the science and not on the art. Well, you you hit it on the head. I mean, I know sometimes you're on the pitch and your experience just says, you know, I've seen that player before. But as you said, if the kid is so talented at nine, if you think you know the reasons why he's going to fail, you, that means you know the reasons why he should succeed. You have time to <laughs> rectify these problems. You have to sort it out. Yeah. No? I mean, there's two ways to look at that. So ultimately, if the kid has the art, you might not be able to do too much with the sign, but there has to be something you could do. And to me, if you're mentally, if you're in the mindset that that player doesn't fit your profile, then ultimately you're saying we're unwilling to evolve because you're looking to do new mythologies and create the same players. And you said it right, that mindset that, you're going to figure out some way that there's something wrong with this player instead of figuring out some way that you can make it right. Surely that's what coaching's about. It's not about finding faults in people. It's about strengthening what they're good at and whatever weaknesses they do have is about helping them to improve them. Surely that's, that's all that coaching is, really, if you look at it from a very basic standpoint. It's about looking at what someone's got, seeing what they're good at, seeing how much they can improve that, how we can get the best out of those strengths, how we can use them to win games or or to help them get onto the next level, whatever that may be. Or it's about seeing what they can't do and, and saying, okay, can we try and fix it? If you can't fix it, fair enough. Maybe he's, he's not going to play in the Premiership. But you've got 10 years to decide. 10 years to decide. But, but yeah. don't write him off. Don't, yeah, don't, don't write decide the kid off he's never going to make it. At nine years of age, come on. Yeah, that's terrible to hear. So to sum up, did you come away with any conclusions as to what you think the proper training ratio is for players in the United States? It's a difficult question to answer because, you know, you can look at research, like we said, you can look at science and you can take what you want from it. For me, I don't think kids should be playing any more than, than one game a week. I think any more than that is is detrimental to to their development and also from a, from a health standpoint players are 70% more likely to get serious injuries during a game than they are during a practice. Um, So you have to take that into consideration. Talking about my own team, we've played three, four games in a weekend, three or four weeks now. And it's ridiculous. You know, the kids can't handle it. Physically, they can't handle it. And it's really, it's only a matter of time before somebody gets a serious injury because of it. So for me, more learning actually happens during training. Now, how much training you do, depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to produce professionals, then really you want them in as much as possible. You want to train them as much as possible. But if we're going to listen to what this study says, then the training has to be very, very careful. The content of the training has to be very, very specific. has to allow for some free play, but then it also has to make sure that the players are learning the right things so that they're ready by the time they get 16, 17, 18 to step into a first team. It depends on the age group too. For me... Under nine, I would say maybe two, three nights a week they should be training with a game on on the weekend. I don't know what you think about that, Janelle. My thoughts, um, and it's just my opinion, I think you got to study the environment. And even in the States, I I think different, as you said, what do they do in the South versus what do they do in the North? You know, do we touch the ball enough in the wintertime when the snow is on the ground? I'm of the belief that if we had the kids playing soccer the way they play basketball here, we wouldn't be having the discussion because it's a cultural difference. I think every kids in the state can play basketball. They're pretty efficient at it. The same way most kids in other countries can play soccer. They're pretty efficient at it. You could just go in a classroom in South America and pick up any eight kids you want. You could play four and four and you'd have a pretty good soccer game. You could do the same here at basketball. I think the reason for that is one, Kids get inspired and what they see and they think is the top of the the pyramid, if you may. Culturally in South America, soccer is like a religion. Culturally here, basketball is like a religion. We see now, and I don't want to trend into basketball, but 
look at what's happened in the NBA. The emergence of all the, the players from other countries over time. Well, what happened before that was the game got to a cultural level in a lot of places where they were playing it on the streets a lot. We don't see that trending in soccer here. I've yet to really see kids grab their ball and their friends and go out in the playground on their own. And maybe they can't because of different reasons. But when you start to see that taking over, I think these discussions go away. All right, that wraps it up for this segment. When we return, we'll discuss decision-making versus problem-solving. the center circle we're now going to touch on the topic of problem solving versus decision making janiel well I, I thought this would be an interesting topic for us to discuss this week um one of the things i find is what is truly decision making in the game and what is problem solving i'm of the belief that you know oftentimes we give kids what we call scripts and, and they're very good at the scripts and i believe ultimately they can make good decisions with the few options that we've given them and then ever so often we find players that it doesn't matter the situation that comes about or if you've shown them a particular solve about it, but they just, what I call, solve the problem. So I believe there's a clear distinction between decision-making and problem-solving. And I just want to throw it out at you guys to see if we could discuss it so that the audience could maybe have a different view of it or just run it through their heads and see what they think. I'd have to say that, like you said, decision-making is probably a choice. So you have maybe two or three options to pass to, whereas problem solving is more creative, more innovative in nature. Um, might be you're confronted by three defenders and you decide to you know, dribble past two of them and then uh, use the third one as a screen to shoot and, and beat the keeper. And on the other hand, decision making, I guess, is, is more of a structured, maybe something that can be pre-rehearsed a little bit. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that, Dan? Well, ultimately... After solving a problem, you're going to come to a decision. So the biggest difference to me is a decision can either be good or bad, and it's more kind of a instinctual, quick thing, as opposed to solving a problem, which is you have to give it some thought. You have to look into what are the facets of the problem and then come up, as uh, was mentioned before, a creative solution. And often the creative solution is going to be the most effective solution because it's going to be something that's not anticipated and not something that's a, a cookie cutter approach. So ultimately you're making a decision after solving a problem, but it's after some careful thought and you know a process that goes on in your head as to what you believe the best outcome will be from that decision you make. And you said something about the problem solving thought. And I think the important thing to see with the problem solving is the risky or the more risk, risky approach. And that's the part that I think the adults are uncomfortable with, whether you're a co coach or a parent or whatnot, because that risk that the kid will probably take, it's, it's being taken without the thought of giving up the ball to score a goal or whatnot. They just see that immediate problem and they want to solve it. So... I think when, when, you, when you add some of the things we've spoken about, like how much influence is winning playing the situation or is it a structured practice versus a game? If kids are, being, are playing the game more often where they're in an environment where they could take that excessive risk and not feel like you know they could be penalized, whether it's by their peers or their coach or whoever, then I believe they could get better at it. But if they're in an environment that constantly says, don't do it, then they can never get good at problem solving. 100%. And kids have to be put into situations that allow them to problem solve. Your practices 
have to allow that to happen. You can't always mass produce practices that just allow for technique to be practiced. There has to be some faults, some problem solving and some decision making involved in your practices. And it goes back to what we've touched on before about creating an environment and an environment that best facilitates that development. And if you're going to produce intelligent soccer players, as Janil said, you want players that are able to problem solve and, and come up with innovative solutions to, to the problems. And I think you touched on something there that's really important, which is the learning. So problem solving facilitates learning as opposed to decision making, which may be just regurgitating what your coach told you or what your trainer told you. So if you're problem solving, you're definitely going to end up over a longer period of time of making more effective decisions where if you're just kind of saying, oh, my coach told me to do this, you know, there's not a lot of thought going into that. And that may serve you over time, but in the long term, you won't be nearly as far ahead as somebody who has learned to problem solve, especially in a training environment. And how can you create a training environment that will facilitate this problem solving? I think uh, your problem solving players, Dan, you, you touched on it there. Your problem solving players are your, are your more intelligent players, the ones that understand the game more. Your decision makers maybe you're looking at your central defenders or, or your, your kind of steady eddies in the team. Uh, players that are very coachable maybe don't understand the game as, as much, I would say, I would suggest. One of the things I do, when I develop players and I, and I try to educate my, my players beyond technique, I try to deal with mindsets and I try to educate my parents as well. What I find is that your skillful players, they tend to be problem solvers. Skill is an important element in problem solving. You're only going to try so much if you don't have a lot of tools. If you've only got one tool in your toolbox, there's only so many things you can do. But if you've got a big toolbox, you're going to explore. Exactly. Is yeah. that because you have more time on the ball if you're more skillful as opposed to somebody who their first touch is not as doesn't have the quality They give them a little extra time, a little extra space to then do a little productive thinking? I think. On a broader scope, scope is just that you have more options. You know, a, a player that is only left-footed might not explore spinning to his right. A player that is ambidextrous will probably spin to his right or his left. So it's just, I look at it as you have more tools in your toolbox, so you have more ways of solving the problem, whereas some kids are just tunnel vision on, again, those two or three options. Yeah, exactly. and Exactly, and it just just gives you the ability to make better decisions and, and solve problems in different ways, which the opponent might not have seen before. So, Jarneel, how would you facilitate problem solving in a training session? I tend to, once I've gone through my technical stuff with my players, when I do my playing in the game, I give them objectives. So I will say, for instance, example, our objective is to get the ball out of the back as quickly and safely as possible, whenever possible. Now, when I give my players that role, now they have to interpret it however they want because I have a center back who's, I believe, one of the, the most talented kids I've seen in a while. And his interpretation of that is, I could beat these three forwards and I could get up the pitch. And then I have a fullback who is, is, is only left-footed and he's not that skillful. His interpretation is, whenever there's pressure, I'm going to kick it out. But I give them these general sense of what our objectives are as a team. In midfield or at forward, I might say, when we're in the attacking third, I might say, we want to take as much risk as possible to get a goal without being selfish. Again, I give them more of a general concept. How do you interpret that? Again, the player with an abundance of skill means I'm going to put this ball through the guy's leg and I'm going to dribble around the keeper and tap it in the goal. Another player says, hey, I'm just going to go down the line. I'm going to cross the ball. So I tend to give them those general rules inside the game and let them interpret it on their own. And then here's the big part. Not only you have to reinforce it, but you have to live with their ability and their interpretation. You could aid them, but you cannot tell the talented kid that has an abundance of creativity and skill that he should do it the other way or vice versa. You have to understand that they see the game differently. You could help them, but ultimately, you must live with their interpretation. Exactly. And I think that's a, a great point that you make there, Janil. You look at someone like Meza Ozil, who signed for Arsenal in, in the summer, and everyone 
was saying at the beginning of the season what a fantastic player he was. They signed him for his assists, he was producing his assists, they were scoring goals, they were top of the table. And then all of a sudden Arsenal had a bit of a bad patch and it was, oh, well, Ozil doesn't defend. Well, hang on a minute, you didn't pay you know, $50 million for the guy to defend, you paid for him to, to set up goals. So you have to be true to your philosophy and what you believe and you can't you know, celebrate a guy for one thing and then vilify him for for the being that thing, thing later, you know. Makes him bad. Yeah, yeah you know, there has to be the there has to be some clarity in, in, in your thinking and you have to you have to have some perspective on performance and on individual characteristics. People can't lose sight of those. Can't you can't lose sight of of the good things when when what they're not good in at bad times yeah in bad times <laughs> another thing that we might not have the time to to look at here and i'm again i, I studied the psychological aspects of kids but you know how does memory play a part in this you know there's there's three ultimate stages of memory according to most scientists that have studied the topic you know short-term memory you could call it mid-term memory and long-term memory and how does things go into those stages what affects them another part of it is how do we get to the memory once it's in our heads how do kids go back and find it and they're saying there's four different ways to do such and and we won't talk about them much but if we don't understand how to go get the memory back then we might find differences in players so we'll use an example of test taking you might find if we all study for a test and we have the memory in our head if we make it a multiple choice test we all might score similarly on it because ultimately the answer is in front of us. If you make it a fill-in-the-blank test, it might change. Because again, one of us might be a lot better off going for the information in our memory. If you know, So I find the same thing with my players. I call it profiling. I profile my players. Some of my players could regurgitate my thoughts, my words, my actions... Whenever, the day after, the day, they have it in their long-term memory, they could go for it. Other players, if you nudge them, you know, simple buzzword, you know, head up, head up, you might get something out of them because you, you kind of force them to think. They won't do it on their own. Other players, they just look at the environment and say, okay, I've seen this before, blah, 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 and they sort it out. Other players, they could see it after the fact. Oh, coach, I know I was offside. I know, I know, I know. So that's an intriguing thing to look at is that the memory and the storage of information in a kid's brain and how can you help a kid to go get the information on their own? How can you make your session so dynamic that the kid is forced to think outside the box and not wait for you to either trigger them or for the situation to come about the same exact way that you practiced it? All right, we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll touch on answers to questions parents often ask. Welcome back to the show. Okay, we're going to get to answers to questions parents often ask. This week, how come Johnny doesn't play blank position? Janiel? Why doesn't Johnny play set position? I believe that players should develop in such a way that they see the game in different ways. Often, if you think about the reason why you'd put a player in, in what you might consider the best position for the team 
is ultimately to put the team in the best position to win the game. When I train my teams, I, I train where my players often play in positions that I know will help them develop that they won't play in on game day. So yes, you have to have that balance of not putting the team in a position to just play horribly, but when do you put the kid in a position to see the game from a different perspective? So why I would play a kid in multiple positions is ultimately to help him see the game differently. And I don't think there's any one right answer to this, but I believe young players should be moved a lot more often than older players. Do you get that question a lot, Tom? And, you know, considering the level of your teams and a parent saying, well, he's so good at forward. How come you have him playing at midfield? Or how come you have him playing at defense? He's scoring a lot of goals. Why don't you play him forward? Yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I've actually had the the same question asked to me of, of my best player who's a right winger. Dan, you've actually seen him play. Uh, young Christopher, he's a year younger than everybody else. Um, and he, he plays as a right winger but he's a little bit choppy on the ball sometimes and sometimes he doesn't get his head up enough. So I started playing him in central midfield where there's more traffic. So he has to be more aware of his surroundings. Um, and then people would say to me, you know, Chris was scoring all these goals. Why are you playing him in central midfield? And I just said, listen, it's better for his development if he plays in there. When he does get moved back up top, he's going to be a better player. And if you explain that it's in the kid's best interest to be playing in a different position, you know, people will understand it. Now, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, parents who... Maybe you're not the most understanding people, um, and it's a kid who plays, I don't know, left back and wants to be a goal scorer when really he's not equipped to be a goal scorer. Then you just basically have to explain to the parents that this is where he best fits into the team, and he's doing a good job for the team here. Um, some people won't accept it. It's just the nature of the game, the nature of the culture that we're in. But you have to be true to yourself and and make sure that you can you can sleep basically with your decisions uh, because if you live by someone else's decisions if you play that kid up top just because his his mum or dad wanted you to play him up top you know where, where does the buck stop you know they'll be picking the team before you know it yeah is there any keywords or key phrases that kind of give a parent that moment of clarity you have to let people know that you care about the kid um, and as coaches you should care about the kid whether they're the best player on the team or the worst player on the team and if you can just get that across, then I think most parents will be understanding, you know. Um, I know I know some people can be a little bit crazy, as, as we've all experienced, but as long as you kind of make it clear that you've got the kid's best interest at heart, then people understand, um, and hopefully they'll accept your reasons. And I'll add, Dan, if you're dealing with young players, it's important to let people know that you're, you're developing soccer players. You're not developing center backs and right mids and whatnot you're developing soccer players and good soccer players will evolve into multiple positions so if you're equipped as a soccer player when you get into your teenage years you could go make the squad at any position you want to make but if you kind of lock kids into early positions you might find that you had a bad read on them or they're not equipped to go play another position in the game and might leave the game a little bit sooner than they would if you allow them to develop some other skills. So with younger players, I think it's important for people to evaluate them as soccer players, not as a forward, not as a center back, but as a soccer player. Okay, great. When we return, we'll touch on You Make the Call, where I ask Janiel and Dom questions about situations on the pitch, and they have to be the referee. We'll be right back. to our segment which we call you make the call where i ask janelle and dom a couple of questions about situations on the field and they have to make the correct call ready all right here we go a goalkeeper punts the ball high into the air a player positions himself under the ball and as it comes down he pulls out his shirt in front of him the ball trampolines off the shirt and lands in front of the player who begins to dribble away. What do you do? Is that against the law? I don't know if that's... that's a, is he breaking any rules there? Well, that's the question to you. Is he breaking any rules? Yes. I blow the whistle. 
All right. And so what's your call, Janiel? What's my call? I got to define it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just know, first of all, you, part of the rule is your shirt should be tucked in. And you can't, use any, <laughs> you can't use any foreign object to play the ball. So I, I believe it's some sort of, um, I don't know the rules it, it falls under, but it's definitely a penalty. I, I would I would imagine it's a penalty, but I, I don't know the answer, Dan. I'm hoping you have a, um, a rule book over there where you can shed some light on this for us. All right. You blow your whistle and immediately stop play. The player is guilty of unsporting play and may even get a deliberate handball. Okay. You issue a yellow card and caution him on his behavior. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. I thought maybe because he was, it was his shirt and it's part of his uniform, maybe he could get away with it. But I like it. It's creative. That's uh, some problem solving that he talks Playground. about, right? Playground soccer. Okay, here we go. The goalkeeper goes to take a goal kick, but slips and miskicks the ball, sending it only a few feet forward. The striker and center back race to the penalty box for the loose ball. The striker gains the lead, and as he's about to take the shot, he is brought down from behind by the defender, who blatantly fouls him. What's your call? Retake. Yeah, he has to leave the box. Oh, this is very good. That's true. Since a goal kick must leave the penalty area to be valid, you blow the whistle and retake the kick. If you feel the foul was reckless, you can issue a yellow card to the defender. Players can go into the book whether or not the ball is in play. There we go, Janelle. We got that one straight away. Very good, no guys. No messing around. No messing around. All right, final question. A plastic shopping bag, and you guys kind of know the ones uh, with uh, are kind of small, but with the handles that you often get at a small supermarket or a bodega. Sure. Okay. A plastic shopping bag with two handles is blowing around on the field of play. It makes its way towards one of the goals just as the attacking team advances. The striker eludes the defender with a deft cutting move but gets off a weak shot. The ball advances towards the far post but enters the shopping bag. The keeper dives to make the save, reaches out, and grabs the bag by the handle, saving the shot. He takes the ball out of the bag and punts it up the field. What now? <laughs> what now? <sighs> Ultimately, if, if I was roughing, the call is the play stands. Um, you, you know, until there's a dead ball whistle, whatever is on the field is on the field. It's a part of the playing surface. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I'd, I'd imagine that maybe when the striker takes a shot um maybe you could play uh, a drop ball from there I, I really have no idea okay here's the answer you blow your whistle and immediately stop play you award a drop ball at the exact spot where the ball entered the bag on the field okay. if the ball was inside the six yard box you perform the drop ball on the six yard line parallel to the goal where the ball entered the bag on the field the bag is known as an outside agent which interfered with play. Once this happens, play is immediately dead. Ah, interesting. Learn something new every day, huh? All right, we'll come back with the final part of our show today, onsides and offsides. For our final segment, we're going to our onsides, offsides opinion piece. This week, we're going to talk about joysticking during games. Is this good or bad coaching? Joysticking for you people out there that don't understand is when the coach is constantly telling players what to do on the field. Janiel? Um, that, that's an easy one for me. I think obviously it's, it's not in the player's best interest which is consistent with what we spoke about earlier versus, you know, decision-making versus problem solvers. Uh, I believe you should joystick in practice and in the games, the kids should have the ability to make their own plays and their own decisions. There is a time and place in the game where the right information needs to get out on the pitch by the coach, but it should be done at the right time and the right 
place and, and in the right manner. Um, different coaches have different methods with that, but um, ultimately, you, you don't want to just leave your players alone, but you want to pick and choose your spots where you're getting in vital information. I'd agree with that. I think if the coaches is sticking, it doesn't allow for any problem solving, any any real even decision making almost um, from your players. So I'd certainly agree in a, a development setting that you're you're looking for the players to to take the initiative themselves, and they can't have everything led by the coach because what happens when the coach changes or they go on to play for somebody else? The guy's going to have a different way of doing things, and whatever they do is going to be wrong. So players have to come up with their own solutions to things and listening to the coach and the coach berating them when they're doing wrong or, or congratulating them when they're doing right and dictating their every move is, is not the way to go if you're looking at developing players. However, if you're dealing with more senior teams and winning is the objective, then maybe that's the way you, you get your teams to win. Um, for me, if we're looking at it from a, a kind of holistic approach here, I always believe that coaches should have a consistent message. So if you do the right things in training when it comes to games, your players should be able to adapt and, and you don't really need to do as much um, because the messages that you've been sending in training over all the months, over the years, whatever it is, um, will, will, will make games easier because they'll understand exactly what's expected from the training you've been doing and, and games will become much easier um, and they'll be able to make their own decisions and, and solve problems on their own. For me, this is a no-brainer for the sophisticated coach. Anybody who's looking at the game as far as player development is not going to be joysticking on the sidelines. First of all, there's a, a difference between joysticking, telling everybody what to do, as opposed to when there's a corner kick and you want somebody to man-mark and they're out of position and you need them to be goal side. Sure, you can yell into the field and help that player be in a position for success. But to sit there and constantly tell players what to do is dead wrong. This is a player's game, not a coach's game. As opposed to basketball or football or some of these sports where you see a coach constantly barraging the players with instruction, soccer is a player's game and the players need to play. They can't play. They can't become independent thinkers if they're constantly being told what to do. So for me... Joysticking, it's a no-brainer. Don't do it. Let the players play. Well said, Dan. Okay, that does it for this episode of Center Circle. For Janir Lorne and Dom Cassiato, I'm Dan Brotman. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please feel free to write us. You can send an email to centercircle at soccertraining.tv. Thanks for listening.